My name is Nina Tara. I'm an art psychotherapist, and you are listening to Courageous Arts A Deeper Dive, episode number eight. goodness I have got such an episode for you today. I am so thankful and grateful to Ollerton Day Spence for joining me in this episode. Um, as we take deeper dives into so many um, ranges of conversation and I'm so grateful to be able to do that. Um, and also something that um, Ollerton Day says about mental health being Actually, could we reframe it as mental wealth? I thought that was beautiful. You'll hear it in the podcast. Um, also, I wanted to say um, I had a little bit of a cough at this time. Um, so, yeah, you'll please excuse my coughing and spluttering, but I am much, much better now. Have a listen to this episode. It is one really not to miss because it really does go into various areas that are really resonating and worth thinking about in ways of possibilities and growth again if you like what you are listening to please 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 leave a review rate it um, and share feel free to share because I say this each week but every rating review and share helps me reach more people to be able to normalize these conversations about reaching out for mental health support and actually just normalizing the conversations around mental health. So I will leave you um, to listen to this episode and let me know what you think um, in the comments below and also in the reviews. All right, guys, have a listen. Hello, everybody. I am really excited today because um, it's it's me being brave. I reached out to Ollerton Day Spence um, in in my bid to kind of reach out a little bit further than just my colleagues. And I had my inner critic going, no, she's not going to, she's not going to, you know. <laughs> but she did. So I'm really, really, really excited to have her with us today on this podcast. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. She is a trauma-informed art psychotherapist and EMDR therapist. She works with children and young adults. Uh, and people, young people, and has experience in working with autistic children and adults. She also has experience of working with Black and Asian groups and individuals to provide culturally sensitive therapy. She specializes in working with the impact of trauma event events. Now, this is what I was saying about before about editing and leaving the mistakes in. So I'm going to leave all my mistakes in. Her aim is to support people to overcome traumatic events, reduce discomfort, distress and find more balance in life. Olatunde, welcome. Hi there. And thank you so much, as I said just now, and I've also just said to you, is me taking a deep dive into myself as well and reaching out to more people 
out of my discomfort and um in you know out of my comfort into my discomfort so it's really really exciting to have you here with us today so shall we dive straight in yeah yeah so um my question is quite broad actually it can be about yourself and or it can be about anyone else that you may know around you but it's about you know uh, share a, a time with us where either yourself or someone else that you know Mm-hmm. was navigating a mental health issue um, and more curiously the springboards that were created for, from that to to kind of create a space for growth and repair so this could be yourself or anyone else that you know around you yeah I think it's probably I'd be happy to talk about myself because if I want to talk about somebody else I think I'd want their consent first of yeah all. <laughs> brilliant thank you yeah um, I'm not saying that I would be sharing personal information but I think yeah. to me it's really important it's a kind of fundamental principle of yeah nothing without us nothing about us without us yes absolutely so I'll talk about me because I can give my consent <laughs> brilliant thank you um, as far as in terms of navigating a mental health issue, I mean, my question is like, what's a mental health issue, first of all? Because, you know, I, I think I heard somebody once say, um, you know, the words mental and health should not be in the same sentence. And the problem is a really curious thing to say. Um, so um, I, I recently wrote something that thought, actually, something about mental wealth. I think I've misheard something. I thought mental wealth sounds actually better. Ooh. You've got to have more or less of. Um, yeah. I might just coin that phrase, my mental wealth. I like that, <laughs> mental wealth, as you said, because you can have more or less of it. And it's easy that mental health is considered something that's negative. And, you know, our mental health, that's our physical health, is something that, you know, we sometimes are okay with, sometimes we need a bit of support mm. with, sometimes we need to kind of take care of it. So I think for me, actually, it's about, you know, our, our internal world um, mm. and, and how that is um, supported us or not at particular times in life. Mm. So I think in terms of my mental wealth, um, mm-hmm. I started out really as a very young person, kind of curious about counselling, really, I would say, um, and probably led there by my own sort of internal sort of struggles and difficulties. Um, mm-hmm. So I think over, you know, sort of my sort of adult lifetime, I think I've always sought to kind of understand a bit more about my internal world. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it was, there was some disruptive because I think, you know, in my own background, I have neglect and, and um, things that happened to me as a child. So um, I was certainly um, curious about, you know, feelings, not really understanding it very well, but I, I was mm. part of a youth project for a very long time and who, and it just ha- so happens that one of the supporters was um, a counsellor. So that kind of piqued my interest. Um, I would also say that in terms of, you know, over, you know, my sort of lifetime, having periods of, you know, feeling very low mm. um, or confused or not kind of knowing which direction I'm going in as well as specific periods of where I've been kind of debilitated by those experiences. Mm. Um, so I think in terms of navigating it, I think it's a, I think it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm consciously doing, I think, so at times it would be unconscious, but consciously doing that in terms of, you know, just checking in with myself, you mm. know, I work as a therapist, so, you know, absolutely critical that, you know, we know how we are. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that quite answers your questions, but I think for me, there's, there's a general principle of, of, of navigating all sorts of issues. Um, and I suppose it depends in terms of what you've got access to, how, how yeah. you navigate that well or not so well or with support or without support. And actually, that brings up a really, really interesting thing, as you just said, what you have access to. Mm-hmm. And um, so many groups of people often don't have access to, to being able to, as you said, be able to think about their mental wealth because they'll often fall through the gaps 
um, that we're thinking about, you know, where they won't show show up on somebody's radar. And so that's interesting to think about as well. Mm. And I think as well, in terms of access to services, are we talking about mental health services or sort of just community services or community opportunities? So for over 30 years, I worked as a community development worker. Mm. And I now recognise that a lot of the work that I was doing, which was very much focused around supporting black and minority ethnic communities to, to come together collectively around issues, mm. that a lot of that individual work as well as the group work was actually really supporting people through, you know, difficult times. Mm. So, you know, back for me, by being part of a, a community organisation, it reduces isolation yeah. you know, with people with similar issues. So I think it's about, you know, this idea that a mental health service should be housed within a GP or within a, a hospital environment or a clinic is to me, it, it, it's not, it doesn't really sort of take in, take into account the kinds of support people might need that doesn't involve a, a medicalization or a pathologizing of people's uh, different mm. experiences. Yeah. And it made me think about, um, uh, you know, certainly <coughs> I can only speak from Asian communities because that's what I am, but there's often a resistance um, to therapeutic intervention and there's something about it when it's in a community mm-hmm. that can be held in a different way yeah. that can be as you said you know uniting people and I, I didn't know if you wanted to sort of share a little bit more about your experience on that yeah I mean again I think I, I would be I hear this a lot you know people you mm-hmm. know from certain communities don't access therapeutic intervention mm-hmm. I think if somebody came to me with a therapeutic intervention I'd say no thanks <laughs> what does that mean it, it's first of all it's probably suspicious secondly yeah. like it's not the language that people use yeah but, you know my experience of working with different groups of people is that, you know if somebody says they've got a heavy heart I kind of know what they're talking about. Mm. If somebody says, I'm not feeling okay, and I don't know of any situation I've been in, and I don't know if it's the same for you, whether it's with elders or with Mm. young people, where people don't talk about how they're feeling. Mm. People do all the time. We pick it up as therapists in a particular way, which I'm having a really crap day because my daughter's done this, or, you know, I've kind of run out of money. People are talking about how they're feeling. So this this idea that, you know, people don't seek therapy, um, I think people are having that as that, those interactions and to me those are conversations on buses mm. you know, the amount of people I speak to who will, will be telling about their woes or something really exciting that's happened mm-hmm. or a change in their life that is a therapeutic relationship and I think you know I think I don't know if I'm correct in this but my somebody shared with me that the idea that the word is it psychotherapist mm. um, I think translates something like midwife of the soul and I think ah Oh, oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I don't know where it's from, but um, it's something that I remember somebody said to me one time, so I don't know where you'd find that. But if we think about that in terms of how we relate to each other as human beings mm. and not humans doing, <laughs> um, <laughs> then, you know, I think we're always in a position to offer, you know, a, an ear or, you know, mm-hmm. a kind of bit of advice or a kind of just an acknowledgement and a witnessing of what somebody's going through. So, yeah. Like I said, I think if somebody came at me with a therapeutic intervention, I mean, of course, I know what they are, but, you know, if that's not your language, then that sounds something that probably is quite scary or will have implications for your, Mm. what people know about you, your reputation, your livelihood, your family. So I think how we, how we discuss these issues, I think is really important. So, you know, if if, if we are thinking about therapies, but how do we translate that information so people have an, have an appreciation of what it is that's been, what's been offered? Mm. And it's it's interesting, as you just said, psychotherapist means uh, midwife of the soul. You know, that's a, is another way of translating it. Um, I'm just thinking how other people would respond <coughs> if they were to hear it's a midwife of the soul rather than, hello, I'm Nina, I'm an art psychotherapist, because that is quite scary. 
come to fix your problems. Yeah, I've come, you know, I've come to do something to you rather than with you. Yeah. It can be really kind of, you know, it can shut all sorts of sort of doors and create all sorts of protections. So it's absolutely, um, you know, I, I completely 100% with you about how it's, how it's actually engaged with, how it's um, given, how it's, you know, communicated. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's something in that that still needs to be, there's still quite a lot of barriers that need to be broken yeah. in that area. <laughs> Sorry, in that area, in that space. And I think for me that, you know, if somebody says they've got a heavy heart or they feel weighed down or I'm not sleeping. So it's like actually trying to think about what's helpful at that time in that uh, in that interaction with somebody as opposed to intervention mm-hmm. that might be helpful or, you know, just showing an interest or asking another question. Um, I mean, I just don't think and whether that's something that's you know peculiar to me, but I've not really ever been anywhere and people haven't been willing to talk about something that's going on for them. Even, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm being part of the International Hearing Voices Movement for over 30, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it might be a, a conversation that comes up for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, people are very willing to talk, oh yeah, I heard an anti heard voices. Oh, I remember that now. And this is how we used to re- refer to it. And then you can kind of change that conversation. Mm-hmm. About, oh yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I wonder what her experience was or mm-hmm. what did you make of it when you were younger? you know it's actually something that's a very kind of common thing and and so you, you sort of changing people's you're just moving away from that medical illness idea or mm. mental illness that actually these are human experiences yeah and yeah. translating it in that way that actually is another human experience that mm. you know share some of us don't some of us understand um but it's certainly something that you know if, if somebody wants to sort of say a bit more about that then you know i'm, I'm here to listen yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I dare to say it, but uh, I'm going to say it because this is about taking a deep, deeper dive um, about uh, therapies in general, not having such a broad spectrum of people in them, you know, like in terms of uh, people of minorities, people of ethnic backgrounds as yeah. therapists, there's not many of us. No. You know, and that how that and just as you're saying, more and more people, you know, you've never been in an experience where somebody doesn't want to speak to you. But mm-hmm. I wondered if you were Caucasian, if they would want to, to to engage with you that way. But I'm just noticing that there's not many people of color as therapists. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think when I talk about people who want to engage me, I'm just talking about, you know, in passing on the bus. Yeah at the shops you know just sort of generally so uh you know people know your face and you smile yeah and yeah, wave and yeah. Whatever people will engage or and I think you know that is really really important about thinking okay so who 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 is in this profession we've got a white a, a, a large majority of white middle class professionals who mm. don't have that understanding don't appreciate some of the issues and are not coming um often with that knowledge um I was listening to um something on radio for about the impact of racism childhood racism on adult mental health Mm. and it was sort of summed up by the guy who was a journalist I can't remember which particular community is from some makes me think he's possibly Asian or Indian I'm not Mm. quite sure so um Mm. but he talked about his experiences and then what he concluded with was that you know he he then began to look for some research because of his own experiences the family was none and so a research program has started to 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 research the experience of young people Mm. um and what he was saying was that even doing the research 
there is actually when people have these experiences <clears throat> there's actually nowhere to go and most therapists mm. are not trained in addressing issues of racism mm. you know you can think about it in institutional terms or practice terms but actually those personal traumas that people have been through people yeah. are just not skilled or trained in that and often in my experience given you know where we are um very very defensive appalling mm. defensive stuff um you know the amount of therapists i've had interactions with on uh, through the BACP Facebook page and some of the things that came out of, there were out of them and it was a couple of days just before George Floyd was murdered mm. people felt justified in making all kinds of comments about interactions with the police that were absolutely fundamentally racist and appalling mm. two days later George Floyd is, is killed and mm. then there's a silence so you know those those counselors, those therapists who are qualified and accredited for the most part, and certainly mm. part of not a bigger organisation, you know, openly um, have those views. So where are people supposed to go if that's yeah. the vibe that you want to <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really interesting what you said about openly um, in that in that openly racist in that way, and also what, what you were saying about becoming defensive. And I was thinking about the, the other. Kind of emotions that go alongside it there's this kind of shame that's happening um yeah. and actually you know i wondered if there was ever going to be a space i mean i know there's a group of uh, my own my own cohorts we regularly meet mm-hmm. and really kind of get into how we can even bring this into our practice because as practitioners it's our duty mm-hmm. to kind of break these barriers and even reflect on our own ways of being in a therapeutic relationship Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if that was going to ever happen in the universities because we're not taught this. No. And it's really, it's a fundamental part of where we are. And yet for so many years, it's gone, it's, it's just gone by the by. And yet this year, this last year has been so powerful mm-hmm. for so many movements and so much to be, to be out and spoken about. But yet here we are still, <clears throat> there's still some sort of shame around it. Mm-hmm. And and that's really important about the training because you know mm. if you're if you not don't have the opportunity to learn and be mm. vulnerable and expose yourself to kind of new ways of thinking then you know you go away from your training with those experiences of shame and or, or that silence about it mm. and um, <clears throat> I used to deliver on a art therapy course um, a, 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 a workshop around racial identity mm. and it was really I mean it was really good that I could do that and it became part of a bigger package that was delivered but I mean when mm-hmm. I did my training there we had one session on race and culture yeah and it was awful there was no opportunity for learning there was lots of shame felt I felt traumatized by it because it was just oh. so you know so direct it was really looking at sort of slavery and how that has kind mm-hmm. of you know um had an impact on black communities but it was just so done in such a way that it was just almost impossible for people mm. not to come away there from that feeling either angry or shame so it's like oh. then, the, then the discussion is stifled mm. and as a black trainee I was only wanting to talk about a black perspective mm. so again for me the, st- the struggle with training was that in order to write a black perspective you have to read all those other documents and theories and writers and then have your own critique of that and then produce what you want to mm. write so two and three times the word with no recognition or credit for recognizing that actually what you've done Mm. is you know three times work you know that whole thing about you have to work three yeah. times as hard if you're bad well you certainly <laughs> do when you're training and yeah. you have to be resilient you have to be knowledgeable in order to mm. deal with some of the the 
the, the shame, the defensiveness mm. and the difficulties people are experiencing when they want to, you know, sort of challenge you about you being there as a black person talking about mm. racism. So the, the, the journey for black therapists who are bringing that perspective and those stories is a, is a really hard one that is not acknowledged at all. So mm. I'm not so much interested in how much that, you know, is put into the work and, and the delivery of the workshops, but actually recognising the experience of black students in those mm. environments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's really interesting. So I was thinking, do you think this kind of shaped your your direction and brought you into the field that you're in now? Do you feel like that might have sort of guided you a little bit? Which particular bit? Um, you know, actually, as we said, there's not enough education around this. There's not enough spaces to speak about this. Um, and, you well, know, and, and there's a, a, you know, a person of colour as a therapist, as a black therapist, as an Asian therapist. Is that do you think that's what may have guided you to, to kind of kind of come to this this place as an art therapist? Because there's not enough people of colour in this. No, I was born into an environment where my dad was a labour supporter and would often speak about trade union issues. So I was kind of born into an environment um, mm. where there was a kind of some political understanding about our position. Not mm. in depth, you know, as children, but you know, from at 18, I was, a, I was an anti-racist activist, you know, very out there doing things as a, as a young person sitting mm. on committees um in organizations it was the f- it was the first time in the 80s where the um cvs's the council for voluntary services were asked to adopt a policy of anti-racist an mm. anti-racist statement mm. and there was a real problem where i was doing that in stockport where they, they, they refused to do it oh so wow. i got very kind of um got very involved and educated by sort of going to the workshops that were being put on to kind of address these issues so that from that point um and, and what actually happened was I suppose that that tipping point for me was I was sat as a young person as a, an executive committee member and I'd raised mm-hmm. the issue that if this person is against you know take on this state because they're quite quite naive and still am in some ways <laughs> if he's against this whole policy then surely he can't continue to be the CEO I've just mm-hmm. sort of said it and I think everybody looked quite shocked I thought well that sounds logical to me <laughs> person. and um within a week that person resigned and I thought oh, no. well that's interesting like, what happened there so at that point I thought oh it's all well not that it's okay to speak out but actually when you do speak out and challenge things things oh. happen I say change so much but things happen so I think for me that was the kind of bug of like this is really important to me thinking about how how um policies and Mm. organizations are addressing these issues so I would say that that journey for me was, was you know from a long time before I even worked as a therapist mm, so yeah. my, I've always been informed by black politics really always yeah. from, you know, from being a, a, quite a young person yeah and so what brought you into the therapy world then what brought you to specifically think about art therapy um I'd had I, I did do some counseling training and at the end of this level three I think that I did somebody came in to talk about the different professions that you know people mm. go into and I kind of had an idea about art therapy not quite sure where from but I knew of it and I was very kind of put off thinking well that will cost a lot of money and that's yeah. only a certain amount of people and um I think just before that I had an experience actually where I'd, I'd gone on a 10-week course in when it was um a kind of community workshop on art therapy and mm-hmm. I really found it very useful I didn't really know what I was doing but I thought oh I really enjoyed that mm-hmm. um so what had happened was I'd worked as a community worker for many years and burnt out several times because all my work was about challenging the council and supporting mm-hmm. and minority ethnic groups to develop and, and and um and grow really and um I was having a conversation so community development at that time was really under attack and I was tired of it really and I remember having a conversation with um, a long-standing colleague who'd been in community development for many years and she mm. said she's um 
she wanted to retrain, retrain to be a midwife. And I thought, oh, okay. And then I think about three seconds, later, I thought, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to retrain <laughs> therapist. And it was literally that I thought, right, that is wow. what I really want to do. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. So that's really what kind of took me there. Of course, I think for all of us as therapists, it's our own internal stuff that's happened to us yeah, and yeah. working issues through and opportunities for therapy while you're in training and, and exploring stuff. So, yeah, I think it was a kind of probably something I've been brewing for a while on something mm. sort of in the back of my mind. But it's like, well, if you're going to retrain, so am I. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny when you said about mid retraining as a midwife and then becoming a therapist. And then you were saying about uh, psychotherapy being oh, midwife of the soul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I've not made that connection there. Um, I, I, at the time, I had um, very young children when I decided to retrain as well. So I kind of, it was at the time when there were lots of redundancies in local mm. authority. So I took redundancy mm. um, and decided to retrain. Um, so mm. my children were, I don't know, maybe about four and six at the time something like that so that must have been an incredible juggle because were you doing it full-time or part were there options then or I did it part-time yeah there was options yeah. to do part-time. it was one day a week um in training and then two days on placement and and mm -hmm. then so they must have been a little bit odd they must have been five and seven because when my children got to be in six and eight I was diagnosed with having ME oh okay chronic fatigue yeah so and oh, wow. that's the story because that turns out to maybe not be the full story um through a very long journey of, of mm. trying to work out what, what you know what's happening in my physical health so mm. I did my training and my qualifications and my placements with where I could barely hold my head up sometimes oh, the circumstance in which I did my training and I was just so determined and, you know I was offered to take a year out I thought if I take a year out do you know what? I'm never coming back it's, it's hard enough mm. being here but I thought mm. and it was I think in some ways um the, the fact that I was unwell and really mm. wanted to kind of you know still achieve something it really pushed me to do it you know against the odds mm. really, really against the odds mm. I was gonna say how did you manage at the end though because you must have been completely burnt out well what happened at the time was my children had to go live with their dad which was just just how it was at that time because I yeah. really wasn't able to or I didn't feel that I was able to give them the best care that I wanted to give them mm. um so um I mean I slept anytime I wasn't upright mm. yeah yeah anyone is having to read material I think I might read but only be able to read a line or two at a time and that's what I did yeah and, and hardly going in yeah, and I look back now and think, God, you know, I mean, I, I sort of suffer with fatigue now, but it's, you know, not like at the same level with very small children, mm -hmm. all the responsibilities and, and the emotional responsibility um, for being separated from your children at such a mm -hmm. young age as well. That was, that mm -hmm. was, you know, as chronic as the fatigue was really in terms mm -hmm. of trying to manage all of that. Yeah, there's a lot, there was a lot to juggle at that point because yeah. with chronic fatigue, it's hard enough managing yourself. And then you have to probably manage all the other emotions, as you're saying, being separated from your children as well at the same time. Yeah. So that's incredible. Yeah, getting trains, you know, to go to get to my classes. And yeah. I don't know how you did it. I'm nodding. <laughs> People can't see me <laughs> nodding, but I'm nodding because I, you know, I can recall for myself that experience. So when you're saying that you were studying part time and doing placement, you know whilst going through this um process it astonishes me that you pushed right through it and that you, you I mean obviously we survive but yeah. it's the level and the degree to which we can think about surviving 
Yeah. And then on top of that, all the kind of um, issues that were coming up on a course where that doesn't actually recognise that their practice is so outdated and it's mm -hmm. so white and it's so Eurocentric. So mm -hmm. they were all the continuous struggles. And I think, yeah. you know, sort of saying that, looking back, I don't know how you managed it. I kind of think I know how I managed it because I'm tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That. I have learned yeah. that about myself that, you know, I can, I don't want to ever be pushed to that again, but I, I can mm. really you know, rise to the challenge when their odds are against me. I think that's a kind of growing up thing in terms of, mm. you know, we're always battling with race and we're always battling with, you know, people seeing us less than. So that's, it's a kind of, you know, mm. a, a legacy that we have, I think, um, mm. of, of sort of pushing through and, and not always succeeding, but certainly having that capacity sometimes. Yeah, to push through. If you don't mind me saying so, but you said right at the beginning something about um, growing up in, in a space of neglect. Mm. And I was thinking about the resilience yeah. of that and that's something that's kind of stayed with you to the point that you can be as resilient as that mm. and push yeah, right through and I think to me it's really important that you, you mentioned that I think you know we often work with people who have neglect have neglect mm. in their background or complex PTSD mm. and what I always want to you know sort of share with people is that that you know as much as it's a really negative impact on your life and yourself the things it has taught you the things that it's actually taught you and the assets mm. you have as a result of adverse experiences mm. I also want to harness those yeah and, and think about you know what have you what what have you succeeded at what have you kind of been able to um yeah. come through at times in your life yeah it's really important yeah and I think you know something about diagnosis I'm finding that uh, when it's a label like that can it doesn't actually it doesn't make that the person. It's not the sum of an individual. It's even with those diagnoses or the labels or whatever, you know, what it is, is as you said, how they've navigated, how they've managed um, to carry on going. Because when we were at uni, the, the load of the cohort were um, diagnosed as being, um, oh gosh, my dys dyslexic. <clears throat> And at the time, I kind of knew a little bit that I was because of the things that they were saying. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't actually bother going for a diagnosis in the end because I kind of thought, I, I know I am. But okay. I was thinking about the ways that the brain works to okay. be able to navigate that. And exactly as you're saying about despite the adversities, what are your strengths? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so powerful. And especially as practitioners as well. And it's as individuals, as you're saying right at the beginning, it's your story that you want to, you're happy to be able to tell your story because you've got consent over that. But in that story, there's so many facets of strength and falling down and standing up again. And I, I, I'm still reeling from the fact that you said you had chronic fatigue. <laughs> so, so that's amazing. So I suppose in terms of thinking about how you navigated the, you know, sort of mental health issues, mm. one of the things that was a turning point for me in terms of really having a better understanding about me and what 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 had happened to me and what's impacted me was I unfortunately was attacked in work I was physically attacked in work mm. and that led me to be off work for a whole year and then sought um sort of psychological intervention which was really helpful to me and that was the first experience I had of being me being that vulnerable mm. saying what was frightening me and why I was so terrified because I just had this terror all the time yeah. um so that was my first experience really of working with somebody who who was just you know willing to be there and hear my story so it's my first experience of recognizing that the experience that I had as a child had left me a very fearful adult mm. and it's, and in that fearfulness I think that you know that we talk about resilience that 
that sometimes when you're fearful, people can retreat or they can kind of step forward, you know, in terms of that trauma response. It's like, actually, I'm just going to style this out. Mm. So I think I really began to appreciate that some of my resilience was also, you know, a trauma response. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. Really sort of, you know, I've got this, I can do this. I'll be all right doing it by myself, you know, mm. not just other people. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, trying to take that whole holistic approach really to my experience of actually having been beaten up in a work context that as mm. the first time has really stopped in my tracks and mm. really had the opportunity to um to nurse against the I guess my uh trauma mm. my distress um and it was okay because I had something that had happened to me mm. it was okay to say I'm really frightened because actually I was beaten up mm. <laughs> and, um, and as a result of that the support that I got I actually went on to do some martial arts sort of self-defense training to begin with it then led into do some martial arts classes mm. and that was the that was the thing that you know really held me together thinking well if yeah. it ever was to happen again yeah. at least I've got this so that's yeah. a real you know a real physical response to having your mm. body invaded by somebody who wanted to hurt you so that that was really important to me so not not your mental health service but alongside the other support mm. I really got my sort of internal strength and courage I think my courage mm. yeah and something about as you said you know doing that um uh physical thing also mm -hmm. about we don't really often think about the trauma being stored in the body as mm -hmm. an energy and as a, a response whereas in that situation wanting to hit back or punch back and not being able to but mm -hmm. with the karate and everything being able to do that and the body being able to process this mm -hmm. yeah absolutely really powerful it's really really powerful I've been doing a lot of bilateral <laughs> stuff okay. well. and uh, you know and that's really what making me think as you said you know doing that and also so empowering having yeah. the body complete that action that you couldn't complete in the time of the trauma yeah, and, and just seeing you do that and, and talk about bilateral again, it's a kind of you know terminology, but you know, drumming is bilateral. Yeah. I do a lot of that in my in my practice, but you know, with an EMDR um mm. sort of process. But you know, to say to somebody when we think about culturally sensitive and culturally appropriate, actually, if you can talk while you're drumming, mm. that can actually just do all sorts of things in terms of being able to process stuff or settle somebody or bring in their rhythm. So I think for me it's that having that breadth of experience of yeah. uh, life as well as um, sort of, you know, modalities or thinking about the way trauma works or how our body and our, our mind process things mm. together, sometimes separately. So I think in, in bringing that, that wider perspective to the work that I do, I think is really important. Brilliant. I was just going to say, because there may be some uh, listeners that don't know anything about EMDR, I wondered if you could sort of widen that lens so that people can understand a little. Okay, so it stands for, it's always a mouthful, um, <laughs> eye movement desensitization reprocessing. That's what it stands for. <laughs> that's why the because it's much easier <laughs> yeah so the idea is that um so I would say probably the explanation I got when I first trained was like you know when we dream our eyes sort of flicker and we, mm -hmm. if we're in that kind of REM it, somehow our brain's processing stuff often it's processing all the kind of the data of the day that we've collected so we might be that we've been sat at our computer working mm -hmm. but we've seen a bird outside we've heard a noise or there's a tv program in the background so we have all this excess data that i mm -hmm. think gets processed through dreams so that's why we have kind of weird dreams i think sometimes so that yeah. doesn't make any sense so emdr is said to be like that dream process in that um it stimulates um your 
adaptive information networks. So that's when that's your brain sorting stuff. Mm. Um, so what they think they understand about EMDI is that if you can engage somebody in something mm. and do a left, right bilateral thing, whether that's tapping, whether that's following some lights or following your fingers, mm. it allows um, those networks um, to be accessed. So if mm. we're talking about trauma, um, the, the, the way the process works is that you, you have a memory a traumatic memory and it's a very limited so there's no exploring it like you might mm. encounter or out of therapy it's a traumatic memory you freeze it at that point mm. um with that there'll be lots of things that are coming up because the way that you ask somebody questions will start to trigger some memories so it might be well what could you see what can you smell what could you hear what was the sensation the physical sensation mm. that went with that moment and how did you feel in terms of your emotions and how distressing was it Mm. So once you've got that picture, that's a still picture, it's very important, it's a very still picture with all that information. Mm. You don't just ask somebody to follow the lights. Of course, there's a lot of training that goes into this, but you follow the lights. And the mm. idea is that it, it sort of triggers um, the, that, that data, if you like, that's stored with that traumatic memory mm. that is now... So, you know, ordinary memories are you can remember when something happened and you can relate to when it was, who was there at the time as a narrative. With traumatic memories, they're often stored with like mm. lots of bits of information, sort of fragmented memories. So the EMDR process allows the brain to begin to process it. So as you're processing, all I would be asking is, and what you're noticing now? Oh, mm. you feel really sad. Oh, mm. so you know you're processing the emotion. What you're noticing now? Oh, I've just had this really weird thing where I could hear my mum shout. Okay. And you don't mm. ask about it. You just keep, so you're kind of shedding this stage. It's like defragging a, a computer. Mm. Getting rid of stuff because the thing that happened then, which was in the past, is still live and current for you now. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is move the traumatic memory into a memory that you can say, oh, that was three years ago. Yeah. Not now. So the idea of the EMDR is that reprocessing of the experience, which is that within the past, although mm. it's affecting you currently. And um, so that the idea behind EMDR is that to kind of reprocess those traumatic memories, feelings, thoughts and beliefs that you have about yourself when that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? And I was thinking about um, how something that's happened three or four years or even 10 years ago can have your nervous system believing you're in that exact same space if something Absolutely. triggers you like that and it doesn't even have to be connected yeah. it can be a smell or a sound or anything can't it yeah and for, for a lot of people it's very distressing and, and not knowing why they're suddenly feeling panicky or sweaty mm. when, you know you know I always use an analogy that I was bit by a dog when I was five but every time mm. I see a dog now I'm 55 I still have the same reaction yeah because that's an unprocessed that happened when you were five it's not happening now and yeah. it's about how does your brain separate out what happened then to you know that that trigger so I think you know we, we probably could all relate to being triggered by something's a word I use a lot where mm. suddenly you find yourself feeling things that seem out of place or yeah too big for the situation so you know it could be an argument mm. with your partner where you suddenly feel very frightened but they're not a frightening person so what does that relate to mm. well that probably and no doubt will go back to your childhood because mm. most traumatic experiences and core beliefs we have about ourselves are laid down you know very early on so if they're mm. traumatic they're still you know they're still live really yeah absolutely and I often sort of think about it and talk about it as a template Okay. That we've learnt a blueprint, if you like, that we've learnt of how to how to work and how to process things. But actually, that doesn't have to exist for us now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that curiosity that you're kind of creating in that EMDR about the drumming. It's being curious, I guess, isn't it? Curious yeah. about oh, that's a sound, and now I can hear my mum, as you said, my mum shouting, and being curious rather than re-traumatized. 
uh, well, in, in, in the process, not being curious, you say, just go with that. And it's quite a funny thing because I work as an art therapist where you're really curious. And you're yeah. <laughs> so I often have to say to people, well, before we get started, I won't be asking you many questions. And the most you'll probably hear me say is just go with that. It's not ignoring what you want to say, yeah. but it's actually a process that's me getting out of the way for you, you and your brain to do that natural healing. We're already accelerating it. That's all yeah. we're doing. So really put it back with the person who's willing to, as well as describe it as um, have one foot in the present with you. Mm. in the trauma and that's what makes it safe so you're not really yeah. traumatized by that process, yeah but you're able to hold that dual attention yeah do you ever find yourself struggling with like do the art therapy and the emdr or have you completely managed to separate the no. or do they have overlaps um sometimes they have overlaps um i can go certainly from it might have a little bit of adjustment time because that's my transition time as well but i, I give space for that but um yeah, I think, no, I don't struggle with it. I think um, I'm very clear about what I'm doing, I'm quite methodical about what I do. So it's like, well, I'm doing the MDR now and that requires that. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes they do cross over. So it might be if somebody's particularly distressed by something that comes up in the art therapy, we could perhaps do some grounding, which would be kind of from EMDR practice really, or any kind of trauma work, do some grounding. Um, sometimes use a thing called flash technique, which is like a mini EMDR technique. Mm-hmm. And that can be done in five minutes. It can bring somebody's distress from down to, from 10 right down to a two sometimes even sometimes down to a naught mm. so the kind of I guess the kind of integrated type that kind of integrative kind of practice really as well as yeah. you know, and lots of things um is the but, the butterfly is that EMDR as well is that yeah I suppose <laughs> it, can come, it, it may come from different disciplines but actually that that butterfly hug is part of that sort of self-soothing mm. uh, thing that you might support somebody to kind of develop and, and use as a practice in between sessions to try to regulate their emotions yeah um, so yeah lots of sort of psychoeducation and sort of teaching of, of of practices that you can do that keep you safe where that would be very different perhaps from art therapy mm. um and i've had people move from emdr because they're not getting on with it to art therapy because actually maybe it's too um mm. full of doing emdr mm. you can really ask somebody to step into their trauma which mm. in the which first place probably sounds like something that somebody wants to do to resolve it but actually faced with it it's a real challenge it's a lot you know i think it's really hard work yeah it's really interesting isn't it how you're talking about things overlapping and working independently and you know it's quite useful to have those both both those skills yeah and also when you know when we think about sort of cultural competence drawn and lots of things so mm. I, I worked with a, um, a young man um when I was a trainee um who had real issues around his racial identity so for me that was like okay I've done lots of work in the community and know mm. something around developing a racial identity what's perhaps needed so I might extend my art therapy practice mm. to you know involving the school um within their black history month um stuff mm-hmm. this young man to research people who had similar backgrounds to him and you know over a period of time he, he developed some some confidence and some um self-esteem about being the only black child in his family so you know I draw on lots mm-hmm. of different things that I, that I can in terms of what's appropriate yeah somebody's faith it might be a whole range of things that you know as, as you know in terms of my lived experience you know I've got mm. a lot to draw on from play work youth work community work yeah yeah I mean probably you could do another podcast altogether about <laughs> your community work because that sounds really really intriguing and really rich as well okay well I've actually got there's a video actually available oh, on YouTube where I'm talking about Black History Month because I was oh, brilliant. invited um by the project that I um was kind of involved in setting up for oh god 30 years ago or something I can't remember how long it is now where the first thing that we did was set up Black History Month activities in Stockport to attract 
um, sort of black community members to something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, I, I did a lot of work um, with those communities and there was invited back as a celebration of the work that had taken place over 30 years. So it, it's sort of asking me about what I, what am I mm. about Black History Month? Oh, brilliant. I can put that up in the show notes for people to access. Yeah. That'd be brilliant, actually. That's really useful because then it kind of gives it more context as well, doesn't it? Yeah. What we're talking think, about him. Yeah, and I think it gives a little bit of my personal history there as well, mm-hmm. growing up as a black kid in the white area and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, and that again is another podcast, isn't it? <laughs> There's so many things that are coming up in my head about, oh my God, we could talk about this, but I could talk about everything because it's really nice for me to be able to to engage in this way. Okay. So Great. it's brilliant. Um, uh, what I was going to ask you is the next thing that I have is, oh, we've already talked about what brought you to this field. I'm so, I think I'm just so blown away by our conversation. There's so many things that I'm learning from you and then also thinking, oh my God, that's so similar. I really want to talk more about that. Oh, okay. But <laughs> we've only got so long. We should have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> we should just sign off and have a good old chat. <laughs> um, do you have any favourite quotes that you like to share? Um, probably a few. I think it, might, it would have been nice to um, look some up, but I think there's um, one which is on my website, which yeah. is, if art is, is a, hang on, let me just think about yeah. this. Oh, actually, I'll put all the your your links up on the um. Okay, let me just website. find my. I've got a few. I have a sort of few that I sort of put out every now and then. So my latest one, I think, is a Leonard Cohen one, which is um something about all being broken, but that's where the light comes in. Something oh yes, like yeah, well, that's where the cracks are where the lights get in, or something. Yeah, something like that. <clears throat> and I think my other one is I'm just trying to think where it is now. It is. I think it's Alice Walker. I, I have so many that I have in the back of my head that I use throwing every now and then. Um, <laughs> let's have a quick look. There's something nice about quotes because I've of, often say on the, the podcast is they feel like little shelves to kind of rest on sometimes. Yeah, and I think it's also if people sort of have an understanding of who those people are, Maya Angelou. <laughs> Oh, my angel. So there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. So that's one that I really like. And I'm just trying to think of the one, other one about it. It's on my... Oh, God, I've lost it now. I'm not quite sure where I put it. No, that's fine. So there is no greater agony than the story inside you. Yeah. And that's that's quite true, isn't it? And no, actually... Is, sorry, no, it's there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story. Oh, then bearing an untold story. And that's true. There's another one that talks about, you know, uh, uh, being heard and that's where the healing is, you know, just being heard. And it takes me back to what you were saying at the beginning in your community work and just being able to talk to people and listening and having them say, oh, yeah, you know, that happened to my auntie or whatever. And that hearing being listened to yeah. is so, so incredibly powerful. Uh, uh, my brain's now working to try and find the quote that I really want about art. Oh, so OK. I'm going to search it up now. My brain will not leave it alone. <laughs> so it is Alice Walker. So the quote is, which I just love, if art doesn't make us better, then what on earth is it for? Oh. I really like that one. If and art doesn't what, make us better. Then what on earth is it for? 
Oh, and that's Alice Walker. Oh, and it's interesting um, as we, we're looking at where we are in this position of lockdown and so many people really gravitating towards nature and towards art and towards that sort of space for grounding. It's really interesting, isn't it? Even in that quote, that what on earth is it for? Because like, I mean, at the beginning of lockdown, back in the first lockdown, so now we're in the third one, but I was trying to get art materials for like some clients that I was going to send, but all the art materials were gone. <laughs> it was like, you know, shopping and everything was gone. So it's interesting how art is really, really being, is pulling people. I am going to be completely honest with you. We had a bit of a technical hitch. In fact, my Zoom um, <laughs> froze. So I had to stop and we had to jump in, back in and re-record. So here we are. But so the last thing I think we were talking about was how powerful art is and how, like when I was um, looking for art materials at the beginning of the first lockdown, they were all gone. And that was in connection to your quote, if art doesn't make um, make us better, us better, uh, what then what on earth is it for? So that's what I was kind of thinking. Actually, people are really leaning into this, you know, into art at whatever levels yeah. um, they're needing um, at the moment, which is really, really encouraging to see. And you can see because, you know, you go past people wind windows, they've got the rainbows or they've got the Black Lives Matter uh, emblems up there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And I saw a, a Facebook thing where somebody asked them to, somebody painted a yellow heart and put it on there just to say that somebody in their home, you know, was unwell. And it became sort of something that everybody got involved in that community. So everybody put a yellow heart, you know, in the window in acknowledgement of this, you know, person posting. Just, just a lovely, lovely, you know, small gesture. Um and it creates community. <laughs> it kind of made me think of way, way back when it was like putting a white pillowcase or something if there was the plague. But actually oh, now we've yeah. transformed it into something actually a little bit more, um, uh, you know, nurturing and actually a little bit more about belonging um, to put as put a yellow heart in the window to let people know somebody's not well mm -hmm. and that can be shared. People can see actually this, my, my, I've got a yellow heart too. And that connection in the community, which is yeah. really, really, um, really lovely. And I, yeah, we did that at the beginning. We painted our entire window yellow and rainbow colours and things like that. And it was just, and I think that's so nice, isn't it? Because it's actually creating conversation. It's creating, and they're doing a new thing, aren't they, at the moment about more art in the window? I'm not quite sure. I saw something. Yeah, is it through the art club? I've heard various things, but yeah, I think there was something with the art club, and then there was some sort of theme for people to put things in their window. But yeah, yeah, yeah my yeah. daughter did a Black Lives Matter poster for me on my bedroom window. Oh, and, brilliant. And I just loved it to kind of, you know, begin to have that conversation with her about, you know, what this is all mm. about and sort of riding around places where you see people that put it in there and thinking that's somebody there who's supporting us. So that, you know, it's a really yeah. heartfelt um, experience of just people actually taking time to put those, um, those matters of importance, you know, sort yeah. of out there. Yeah, again, as you said, uh, feeling supported, creating conversation. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> without that that other element of shame that's been kind of attached to it, but actually real conversation that actually gives a platform for change. Yeah. 
which oh. is really, really crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go into our quick fire round of questions. Um, so this is a, a little bit of fun. You need a buzzer. Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm, a, I'm a quiz show kind of person. I love that. Find general knowledge at me and I'll see what I can do. <laughs> it's just a bit of fun to end um, as we kind of winding down. So it's a bit oh, of fun yeah. to end on. Um, so texting or talking? Texting. Texting. <laughs> There's other people that prefer talking. There's other people that prefer texting. We're all so different. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it depends on the context. It's something that I don't know very well. Or so my, my son prefers text, so we often have text conversations. So <laughs> I appreciate that he doesn't always want to verbalise. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the powerful thing about it now is that you can record a quick message and send it as well. Yeah, I'm just getting used to that voice notes. I keep yeah, calling I've... voice notes, my kids laugh at me. I'm just sending you a voice note. I said, no, mommy, it's that voice note. <laughs> I know, I've tra- had trouble with it where I think I've sent something and the person's saying it's there's nothing there. <laughs> oh, that's because you're not a press saying. <laughs> well, I, haven't, I haven't worked it out either yet. Um, do you have a favourite colour? Blue. Blue, that's nice. Um, last book you bought or downloaded? Uh, I've just bought the what's his name? The guy who does House of Games. What's he called? The Ben oh, Carl guy. It's oh, the Thursday, the Thursday Murder Club. Um, oh, what's his name? Watch it every night. The show. Oh, I can. I can. Pointless. Whatever. Oh, oh okay. Hang on, let me have a look. This is this is great because now we're talking and I'm googling as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is it the House of Games man? Yeah, although he's it's his first novel that's done really well and it's a kind of um, very soft, gentle um, book about a group of people who live in a, an old people's kind of village um, and they kind of get involved in investigating crimes. Oh, so the House of Games Richard, is about Richard a psych, psych, psychiatrist, is it? No, Richard Osman. That's what it's called, Richard Osman. Okay. Yeah, and before that, I was reading Lem Sisse's book. <gasps> I, I love that book. And it's I've also my- just ordered something around art therapy and eating disorders and art therapy exercises. So that's, mm. that's been the, just that they've been in the last sort of two weeks. So I've been a bit prolific with uh, getting reading material. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite a juggle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah well, I was treating myself to the audio book, so I thought actually it's quite nice yeah. having somebody read the story to you. So yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the last book that I bought. I find I take the information in more when I'm listening to it. I find it's quite interesting that I'm taking it in more. Yeah, it's different, I suppose. So I thought, well, I wonder what I'd be thinking if I was reading this. I wonder what that character yeah. would sound like if I was reading this, or because it's spoke, it's like a narrated story. So I wonder what their voice would be. So yeah, it's yeah. different. Different. Yeah, I listen to yeah. quite a lot of radio drama, so I'm kind of used to it. But it's just thought, you know, normally I might read a book and a novel. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, and I guess with me, I, I was thinking about more options about being out there and for a walk and then plugging in to listen because actually at the moment there doesn't feel like there's an awful lot of time so okay. it's actually creating time in that space but you said about lemon uh, lemon and i thinking you know that's a really 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 powerful book yeah um and i've been reaching out to him as well to see if i can get him on this podcast to talk okay. so that would be really really good because it's such a powerful story again of of you know resilience and and where he is now with his writing it's incredibly powerful but i'll put them all up in the show notes um would you rather be able to speak every language 
in the world or talk to animals? Every language. Every language. <laughs> the people that have got tons of animals will go, oh, just animals. <laughs> just animals. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm always really fascinated by people who speak more than one language thinking, well, how do you think in which language yeah. do you think in? And my, <laughs> uh, we have a family where we've got French speakers, Spanish speakers. My brother's really good at languages and I struggle with all of them. Yeah, I feel like I could keep up with our family members. <laughs> yeah. daughter speaks Spanish. She's got a Spanish oh, wow. friend. And so, yeah, so kind of like, yeah, I think go for every language so yeah like, you can talk to animals in different ways you can you know stroke them and yeah it's silence isn't it <laughs> there's a different kind of connection it's yeah. funny as you were saying um about uh different languages and actually often in my dreams i'll be speaking in my in my mother tongue like punjabi okay. so it's okay. funny that it translates to dreams as well isn't it i hadn't thought okay. about it until you you just yeah, my brother speaks punjabi urdu he oh. told me he was studying ancient nordic Wow. the Viking. He just loves language. He's got that real kind of attitude for languages. So it just makes, and I just think I just stumble along in English. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, me too. Just about. <laughs> no, I've got Google Translate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So fill in the blank. My superpower is. Oh, my superpower! I don't know what's my superpower. <laughs> detail. Detail. I always oh, notice the detail. And detail is where a lot of the things are, aren't they? And the tiny yeah. little details, absolutely. Yeah. I like that one. It will drive my partner back because if something's out of place, what I notice is what's out of place, not all the other things that are not out of place. So I said, well, that's logical to me because I'm only going to see the things that are out of place. <laughs> that's, <very, laughs> that's very true. That's I notice the other stuff is kind of like, it's not standing <laughs> out. So it's a, yeah, detail is, as it kind of, it has its um, pros and cons, I guess. So yes. sometimes you get stuck in the detail and not see the bigger picture. So yes. Aspect, so. Yeah, as a double double thing to it is, is a paradox, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, Favourite season? Autumn, I think. Mm, the richness of the colours, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've just got my daughter showing, showing me a note. How long? Um, I think I've changed my mind about going out. <laughs> we I've got no oh yeah that's going oh, we're almost finished <laughs> this is the this is the beauty of podcasting and where we are at home it's just where lovely from home, yeah, yeah. and it's real it's absolutely real so i'm not going to edit this i'm going to keep it that's in because i think it's, it's it's authentic as well so last question uh slippers or cozy socks Slippers. Slippers. <laughs> you can run outside with them as well. <laughs> Get away from anything when you've got something good on your foot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lastly, uh, where can people find you on on your website, on social yeah. media? Or? Yeah, um, you'll find me on my website. Uh, so I have a, a website called Acoma Healing Hearts. And so you can find me there. And I'm on, I think my profile's on Psychology Today as well brilliant so i will put those all in the show yeah. notes and is it okay for people to connect with you if they want to that way yeah that'd be fine yeah through the, yeah through those um places that'd be great brilliant oh thank you so much for today and despite the the kind of interruption like with my computer and everything I think we've managed to keep it going. (laughs) We've managed to keep playing, as Winnicott always says. (laughs) We've managed to keep playing. It's been an 
absolute pleasure talking to you today, Olatunde, and I hope we can again. I hope we can connect again and have another conversation and another deeper dive into another topic. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be up for doing that, definitely. Yeah, it's been so much fun. So thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to me talking to Olatunde Spence and it has been a delight. So thank you so much. enjoyed that interview <clears throat> I really did and I didn't realize we talked for ages um, and I think that is such a testament to how um, these podcasts are going because I'm really really enjoying talking to my guests and I hope my guests are enjoying talking to me and so together we're bringing you these conversations for you to be able to take your own deeper dives um, and um, platforms for change Um, So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I have more coming up, but in between I will be taking a short break um, just to to kind of catch up with myself because I'm sure you all know how busy things are for everyone. Um, But do leave a rating, a review, and feel free to share this podcast. You can also find more of the previous episodes on my website www.courageousart.co.uk um, and you can also follow um, me on Instagram on courageous underscore art underscore therapy and you'll be able to find more links to other podcasts and future podcasts there. All right, guys. Well, listen, I hope, as I said, you enjoyed that and please keep um, your notifications on so you can know when new podcasts are going to be up okay well listen take care i hope you've all been enjoying the snow because that's the time when this has been released and enjoying playing i will see you again soon all right take care now bye